You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. What is going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas. This week, you're listening to episode 189, which means that we are 11 episodes away from the big 200. I can't talk today. What's going on, Mark? And as usual, you and I haven't even started talking about what we're going to do for episode 200. That's how we miss episode 100. We, we didn't start talking about it to 199. It was right around the corner. But we're going to try to do something for, for 200 and maybe even bring in our show sponsor, IBM. I need to reach out to them, see if they're willing to partner with us and do something really cool for our audience. But you asked what's going on. There's two things going on, Jake. Number one, we've launched a new show, Oil & Gas Offshore. Big shout out to Andy and Tidewater Marine, the sponsor of that show. It's a soft launch. There's a handful of episodes out you can listen to now, but we're doing the grand launch from the International Workboat Show in New Orleans, December 4th through 6th. We'll be there live on December 5th with podcasts to do the launch of that show. So another one to the family. We're growing. It's fun. The other thing is, Jake, you work out, right? I mean, we know yeah. you do. I've been known to work it a few times. Yeah. So for the last couple of days, I've been talking to myself going, man, I got a heck of a chest workout or a heck of a back workout because I'm still sore. And then I woke up this morning and I figured out what it was. I'm sick. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that sad that I thought I got a really good workout? What it is, I have a really bad cold or touch of the flu or something, and I'm just sore all over. But for a day or two, I thought I got good workouts in. So it wasn't until I woke up this morning with fever and I figured out that that's not what it was. <laughs> Well, hopefully you can manage today and get to the episode. You know, I've had a lot of those days over the past few weeks with temperature change and the cold front coming in, and I just have seasonal allergies that are just terrible. I went through about six boxes of tissues the other day. My guys were like, are you okay? Are you going to die? I was like, ah, I think I'll make it. If you have allergies, Houston is the worst because there's almost no time of the year where we don't either have some type of pollen or some type of mold. It's just horrible. And I'm just like you, Jay. I, I have allergies too, but whatever I have now is more than allergies. It's, it's no fun. Speaking of no fun, what's no fun is when we don't get reviews. However, we got a review from B code number seven, United States of America. Very informative without being too long or too many details, just enough. See, that's a great <laughs> review and it's honest. And so we appreciate you, BMCO 7 of the United States, for our very for your very informative review. So if you want to be like BMCO 7 and get a shout out of the show, leave us a review. Jake and I will be happy to give you a shout out. And Jake, this is a time of year where we do my oil and gas predictions. It's really funny. The first people to hear this was at a private event a couple of weeks ago. The second group of people that gets to hear this is our podcast audience. And then the third will be the video that goes out next week and then everybody gets to hear it. But, you know, people, I have no crystal ball. This is me doing educated guessing based upon all the conversations. So I have all the different business leaders in the oil and gas industry for the past year using my, you know, past and what I think could happen in the future. So, you know, please, please, please do not invest any money <laughs> on what I'm getting ready to talk about now, but it's what I think is going to happen for next year in 2020. You ready to do this, Jake? Let's do it. All right. Here's the one you and I could disagree on. Maybe. So number one, <laughs> go big or go home. Shale is changing in the United States and shale is changing because of a bunch of reasons. One is the lack of capital efficiencies that's been happening for the last couple of years by the independent operators. The other is that the hydrocarbon prices are stay low for an extremely long period of time. And the big major operators actually own the, the mineral rights instead of buying them. So you put all that stuff together and I, you can see the current shale market do a, a turnaround where in the next 10 years, I think the majors and the super majors are going to own the shale market. They're going to pick up the good operators, the media operators, because when you own the mineral rights, that gives you anywhere from 50 cents to $3 more of a barrel profit, which means the majors can make profit in areas in shell that the independent operators can't. And they don't have to go in production. 
because they own the mineral rights, unlike the independent operators. And they don't have to borrow cash because they have it themselves. So I think starting in 2020, the shell plays, you either have to be a big operator to still stay in the game or you just need to go home. I agree and disagree. I think we're going to see a ton more consolidation. I think some of the bigger, more independent operators will either merge or one's going to buy up another one. There's a few that kind of stick out to me that could be good acquisition targets based on current stock prices. Some who have made very large acquisitions themselves without naming any names. And I would agree. I don't know if the impact of the super majors, I don't know if they're going to be the dominant players. I don't necessarily see why they wouldn't, but I'm not sure if it's going to have as big of an effect as we may think it will. But I think we're definitely going to see a lot more consolidation for sure. Yep. Agree hundred percent. Number two, petrochemicals rule. <laughs> so if you think about the growth in global oil consumption, so not the current consumption, but the growth in oil consumption out to 2030, about two thirds of that is petrochemicals because petrochemicals is what makes modern life possible. And by 2050, about three quarters of the population in the world will live in cities. And you can't live in a city without Tupperware, car tires, electricity, internet, and all that relies on petrochemicals. So you're going to see additional consumption globally of petrochemicals. And the cool thing about the U.S is that our politicians haven't gotten involved. So you see all these ethylene crackers and all these petrochemical plants being built. They're predominantly being built for export to make money by selling the petrochemicals to the rest of the world. And we have the second cheapest feedstock, right? So the Middle East has the cheapest feedstock. We have the second cheapest feedstock, but we don't have the social cost that the Middle East has. And we have the cheapest transportation cost because we have deep water ports on every coast. And some very smart people have figured out that instead of putting all the petrochemical plants in the Gulf Coast and then pulling those hydrocarbons from all the different plays in North America and pipe it in my pipeline, which is a constraint and adds a layer of cost that transport from the pipelines, build the petrochemical plants where the hydrocarbons are. Hence, shell building ethylene crackers in Pennsylvania. It's genius. So we've won. Our politicians haven't noticed this on either side. And I'm not picking a side because one side doesn't like us at all. One side has no idea what we're doing. But because they haven't stuck their finger in it, because they have added tariffs or taxes, we've we pulled ahead of the rest of the world. And that growth is going to continue. So you know, we burn about 20 million barrels a day here in the U.S. We've always burned about 20 million barrels a day, but every year we use less and less of that for fuel and more and more of that for petrochemicals. And that trend's not only going to continue, but it's going to accelerate. So number two, petrochemicals rule. Absolutely. You know, and I'm always focused on what makes the most sense and what makes the most dollars. And petrochemicals have ruled for a long time. If you look at any of the earnings for any of the super majors, Chevron, Shell, Exxon, so on and so forth, your petrochemical divisions or anything downstream has made significantly more free cash flow than anything upstream or midstream. So petrochemicals do rule. I think it's a bright future for those guys. Excited to see what's next. All right, then for the first time ever, regional hydrocarbons. So for the longest time, this is my question that stumps people. And, and audience, if you're ever live when I ask this question, because I'm going to tell you the answer on the show, don't blurt it out because <laughs> you ruin it for everybody else. But you know, every time I do a live event and it makes sense, I always ask the question, how can a, a barrel of WTI be exactly $52 today in Houston and also $52 in Rio de Janeiro and exactly $52 in Tokyo, Japan? And nobody can ever answer that question. To this date, nobody's ever answered that accurately. The reason is exactly the same price is because we have the global infrastructure to move that barrel oil for almost nothing at any time between super tankers and pipelines. So if you don't want to pay $52 a barrel for it today in Houston, I can move it to Tokyo for almost nothing and sell it for $52 a barrel. It's one of the true global commodities. Here's an interesting fact. At any one point, there's more weight in crude oil being moved through the world's ocean than the weight of all the fish combined. That kind of puts it in perspective. Well, global tanker rates 
for the first time ever are going up. For the longest time, that was a commodity, or right? it was a logistics commodity. Now the cost of those very large tankers are going up. So anything two million barrels and above, the price to, to move that that ship is is going up to a lot. So just what was a couple of years ago, a million dollars or two million dollars worth of tanker fees to move it from here to Asia Pacific, has gone up to the point that it's now ten million dollars to move that tanker. So that rising cost of tanker transport, crude buyers will now start looking for supplies closer to home because the transport cost has gone up so much. And that trend doesn't doesn't sound like it's a big deal, but it really is. So what happens, you know, here in the U.S., we love heavy, complex crudes. We're one of the few countries that can refine it. What happens when the transport cost makes those crudes unattainable or, or, you know, they don't make financial sense? Do we now retrofit all refineries in the U.S. to use the light, sweet crudes we produce here? And the same things are going around the world, right? That Brent crude that's in the North Sea, the European refineries love that and they're, they're tailored to, the, to use that Brent crude, but that Brent crude is also show, sold in Asia Pacific, and those refiners are also set up to process that Brent crude. Well, the price could go up so much that maybe the Asia Pacific region starts relying on the lighter crudes that come out of the shell plays in China, right? So I think for 2020, regional hydrocarbons for the first time ever are be a big play. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and challenge you on that. So if WTI, for example, was the same price everywhere. How do we explain basin and intra-basin differentials? For example, in the other day, in Cushing, it was 53.98. In Houston, it was 56.81. And in Midland, it was 54.77. Yeah. So what I'm talking about is the global price. For it. What you're talking about is actually the constraints, the price differentials, because there's not enough transport available. And so the operators pay a, or pay a discount premium to move their crudes to market. So that's what you're talking about is, the, is those, those price differentials because the constraints. As we increase these number of pipelines, especially between Cushing and, and Houston, you can see those constraints, those price differentials slowly go away. That won't be yeah. for another five or six years. So really regional hydrocarbons, I probably should have rephrased that. I didn't mean inside of the US, I meant globally regional hydrocarbons. Yeah. Okay. So I agree. It's it, same, same, but different. Okay. Yeah. All right. Number four, hello, agility. So Jake, you have to understand that when this industry was started in, in the, you know, late 1800s, hydrocarbons were a constraint. And all the way up until just recently, hydrocarbons have always been a constraint. Can you find them? Can you get them out the ground economically? Can you move them? So the oil and gas industry was built in a resource-constrained world from the very, very beginning, right? And so the old methods, military-style you know, command and control works very well in that type of resource-constrained world. And it's, I mean, you look at the majors, you look at Exxon, that's one of their differentiators is, is for the longest time, they ran that company like a military organization. And it worked and it worked really well. Well, now that we're in this hydrocarbon abundant world and the resource constraints have are in the process of going away, I think the oil and gas companies that are going to be more agile, they're going to be able to move quicker and faster or out will be able to outcompete the big guys that move slow. And then for the first time ever, I think you actually see that. And I think you can see even the super majors realize they need to be more agile in order to compete in this hydrocarbon abundant world. So I think agility is going to be a competitive differentiator in 2020 for the oil and gas industry. I, I would 100% agree. I, there's one of the things I actually talked about at the uh, HBS had their alumni angel investing group when we, had, we spoke about the other night. And when we're talking about the future of oil and gas. One of the things that I like to see is we, we talk so much about operational efficiency, but I think there's a huge gain to be made in investing into the efficiency of human capital, investing into the efficiency of your workforce. And we've seen a significant emphasis put on this in Silicon Valley. Very, very basic things in terms of project management software. And we had a task spelled T-A-S-Q for anybody who wants to look it up on the one of the gas startups podcast the other day. And one of the novel things that they do is they're working on production optimization, but the endpoint is not just how do you optimize it, it's 
creating a task list for people to go through and keep track of where they're at in the process. I have never seen anything like that in oil and gas ever. And as somebody who's, you know, kind of from the tech side originally, that's something that we have tried to deploy with every single one of our businesses. And so if you can imagine the, the efficiency gains that you can make across your workforce for an organization like, like an Exxon or a Shell or a Chevron or any of these, even an Oxy, you know, it would be, it's hard to even fathom what, what you can actually get out of that because a lot of the time is, is wasted trying to find certain things and there's things that slip through the cracks and it's really, really hard to run an efficient organization of that size. Yeah. What was that tool called again? Task? Task. Yeah. So it's production optimization software. So it's a free shout out to those guys over at Task. They're based out of Denver. They're a startup, but they're working with some big companies now. You know what's cool about that? So if you think about what they do, that means that somebody can go halfway through the process and they can go on vacation and somebody that wasn't involved the first beginning of that process process could step right in and keep it moving. Once again, you're spot on. It's it's using human capital to the most efficient way possible. That that's really cool. I hope those guys knock it off the park. Yeah, absolutely. So long story short, you know, Silicon Valley doesn't do everything right, but I think one thing they have done right is implement certain tools, certain processes, certain rules. You know, Jeff Bezos has always had a, a two pizza rule. And so that's never have a team, never have a team that's large enough that you can't share two pizzas, right? And so if you operate as small quote unquote fire teams like we did in the military mark, I think you run more efficiently. Yeah. I, Agreed. Yeah. And, and I think it's coming. I think, I think the industry has no choice. All right. For the first time ever, I'm actually going to put pricing out there. So we've never actually, we've talked about what we thought prices could do, but every year people want me to, to actually put a number and I am. And once again, I have no crystal barrel people. Crystal barrel. Listen to me. You said military. I have no crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. All right. So for 2020, I think the average for Brent's could be $64 a barrel. I think the average for natural gas would be $2.55 per million BTUs. That's slightly higher than what a lot of the other analysts out there are saying. There's a lot of people talking about the growth in demands is going to slow down more than what we had anticipated. And I, don't, I think that's wrong. I think the growth demand is spot on. And I think you see prices slightly higher than what most industry analysts are doing. Once again, people, I'm not an industry analyst. This is my best guess. But still, my my numbers are within within a little, you know, a dollar or two of, of what everybody else is saying. I am, I'm not going to necessarily disagree, but I'm also not going to make a prediction. But my thought process is I want to kind of see the current, I guess, the the state of shale oil and gas in 2020 and what does that lead to in terms of consolidation? And does that lead to a reduction in overall daily production nationwide? If so, then in theory, prices should go up. But if not, production doesn't really seem like it's slowing down regardless of that. So I would say that your, your prediction is probably going to be pretty accurate. Yeah. So I, I do think production will start going down next year. I think that's why I think the price will go up a little bit. The other thing is there's a chance for the prices to go through the roof that's later on in the prediction. So let's keep moving. There's also everything that's happening with Saudi Aramco and their IPO, right? So everybody's – the word on the street is if they don't do the IPO, they're going to run out of cash soon. I don't think they're necessarily going to run out of cash, but they're just not going to have as much cash as they've had in the past. I'm getting to that, Jake. Don't spoil it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so number six – talent. You know, Jake, you and I both both believe that, especially in the shell plays, the operators and service companies, next year is not going to be a fantastic year for them. And you're going to have, unfortunately, people looking for work. But with all that said, for the first time in our industry's history, people from around the world don't want to come work in our industry because they think we're destroying the planet. For the first time ever, some young teenager in Nigeria doesn't want to go work for Shell because they think Shell is contributing to global warming. We've never had that before, ever. Up until just recently, that young teenager, not only would they be happy to go work for Shell, their whole village would have celebrated because they got a job 
which was money and shoes and medical care and prosperity for everybody. And that's not happening more. And as an industry, we need to own that. We have a talent shortage coming at us like a freight train. You know, you speak of Silicon Valley, a lot of the new breakthroughs and new processes and new technologies that our industry needs and is working on comes from the tech side of the house. And if you're a data scientist and you think the oil and gas industry is destroying the planet, you're not going to work in this industry, but we need you. So this talent shortage is is enormous. It's not going to be here yet. We think it's going to take about five years to really make an impact, but we think we're going to start seeing the symptoms of it next year in 2020. And, and as an industry, we need to fix this ourselves. We can't depend on other people. We can't depend on industry groups. You know, there's a lot of industry groups out there. I'm going to sit on the board of a couple of them. They just don't get it, Jake. And so the companies themselves have to enable their employees to go out and talk to their neighbors, talk to the people that go to school with your kids, and just talk about the truth about our industry. And if we don't do that, we're in deep trouble. Absolutely. I think there's a couple different things here to, to kind of unpack. It's a cyclical industry, and that's something that we can't help. But what we can help is becoming more efficient as an industry, specifically upstream. I'm talking to you. Your people shouldn't be the first thing that you cut when you're looking to cut cost, Right. There's a lot of other things that you can, there's a lot of other fat that you can trim. And if people are not a priority and you do not value your people, those people will not come back to your company, nor will they come back to the industry. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, as an industry, we do have a public perception issue. And it's something that we need to address and putting out an ad for the Super Bowl, you know, thanks API, that was a great one, but that doesn't do it. We need to collectively as a, as an entire industry, put out more content about the things that we are doing and the inner workings of this industry, because it is up to us, whether we like it or not. You know, I'm talking to a lot of capital guys daily on the private equity side, on the VC side, family offices, all that. A lot of doors are closing for any kind of energy investing due to any of the environmental safety and government issues surrounding our industry. So whether you know it or not, it is affecting you. Okay. And so it is our responsibility to, to shed some light on all the good things that we do and how, you know, petroleum products and, and that oil and gas provides allows us to have this you know, wonderful life that we live thanks to cheap hydrocarbons, you yep. know? And so that was a very long answer, but if you want to attract the right kind of talent, we need to fix public perception. Yeah. Agreed. And we need to do it ourselves. We don't need to depend on other people to do it. Absolutely. All right. Number seven, speaking of public perception, going green is picking up steam. So 10 years ago, when a lot of the majors and the big service companies start talking about renewables, clean energy, it was PR fluff, quite honestly, right? They, they really had no meat in, in the game. Now they do. So now everybody's trying to figure out ways to make money from, from re renewables or clean energy, which I hate the name clean energy because that means by default, Anything else is not clean, which is not true. Hydrocarbons can be some of the cleanest energy out there. But anyway, so the, the companies out there are looking to make money at this, and they're investing a lot of R&D dollars to figure out how to make another line of revenue. Now, one of the things, we've talked about this before, but one of the things that a lot of people don't get is all the major oil and gas companies are supporting some type of carbon capture, carbon credit, carbon tax, whatever, and it's going to happen in the U.S. Now, I, I think it's not the right thing to do, but I'm firmly convinced it will happen, whether I think it's right or not. And so if you think about global CO2 emissions, the number one way to lower that is to have countries switch from coal, which is what how most electric 
electricity is generated around the world to natural gas. That's the number one way to reduce CO2 emissions. Well, guess who you buy the natural gas from, folks? <laughs> the Exxons and the Chevrons and the BPs of the world. So, of course, they support this. The other thing is, and I had a, a discussion with somebody much smarter than me about this, and he says that I am probably a decade too soon. So, so I may be wrong about this. But the other thing is, you know, when you start thinking about being carbon neutral, there's technologies out there that aren't commercially viable yet. And I think they're going to be commercially viable soon. And some very smart people say I'm wrong. I'm a decade too soon early on that. But there's some physical ways to pull CO2 out the air. And so if I'm a major super major and I can, using technology, measure how much CO2 I put out, globally. And then I pull that exact same amount of CO2 out of the air. I'm now carbon neutral, right? Makes sense. But does it stop there, Jay? I don't think so. I think what if they pour more CO2 out there than they produce? They get tax credits for that, right? They get paid. Is that a revenue stream pulling carbon dioxide out of the air? And then if you don't know this, one of the many enhanced oil recovery techniques is CO2 injection. So did our tax dollars just pay Chevron to pull extra CO2 out there that they could use to recover more hydrocarbons? How sweet a deal would that be? You know, And in the public eye, that would be a cool thing to do. So Going Green is definitely here. All of the majors and all the big service companies are all looking at ways they can get into the renewable market. And I love renewables. They make sense. There's actually some really cool stuff going on with Equinor with offshore wind farms. And what they don't talk about because they're wanting to make sure that they're they're promoting their green side or the renewable side is a lot of that offshore energy they're using themselves for their offshore rigs to produce hydrocarbons. And I think that's an awesome deal to do, right? And even building offshore wind farms, the engineering and the actual construction is not a whole lot different than building offshore production platforms. And all those companies that do that type of work have another revenue stream besides production platforms. But going green is here in oil and gas and it's not going anywhere. You're 100% right. Like I mentioned, you know, there's so say uh, next, Jake. Okay, we'll go to the next one. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about that? We can. Yeah, I, I was just going to say you're absolutely okay, right. I, guess I mean, there's there's not a whole lot to not a whole lot of color to add to that. All right, here's one that I'm really going out on the limb, but I am firmly convinced we're going to have a major conflict in the Middle East in 2020. There's a bunch of moving parts. You know, our the CIA does not call me and ask for my strategic advice, although I wish they would. You have U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia being paid for by Saudi Arabia. That's the first time ever that's happened for. You have the IPO, like you talked about, Jake, for Saudi Aramco. You got Iran and Russia all got their hands in this. We have our hands in this. And like you said, there's a financial driver behind the Saudi Aramco IPO. Now, I've read the same reports that you've read where it says that if they don't go public, they're going to run out of cash. I don't believe that. But I, I do think that they realize that if they can't exert more power over their peers in OPEC, that the OPEC's going to crumble. And, and all of their power to make money off hydrocarbons is the the cooperative of OPEC, right? And so if OPEC dissolves, all of the countries, including Saudi Arabia, are going to suffer from that. And I think that's going to be the fuse, the match that lights the fuse. And I think you're going to see a major conflict in the Middle East. I hope I'm wrong. I don't want to see anybody's troops, especially ours. I don't want to see boots on the ground over there again. But if it happens, you're going to see global oil prices spike. But for the first time in our history, instead of it spiking and then coming back down once the production gets back up in the Middle East, it'll spike. That's going to drive Russia and the U.S. to compete to grab that market share from the Middle East. And the Middle East knows that. So they're going to do everything they can to keep a conflict from happening because if they lose even more market share after a conflict, they're done. Their days are numbered and they know that. Unfortunately, I see all the signs pointing toward a, a, a pretty significant conflict in the Middle East. Like I said, I hope I'm wrong about that. 
So this is something that I don't think I've necessarily mentioned in a long time, and it's kind of been top of mind lately. And I think the reason it's top of mind is paying attention to, you look at where cash comes from, right? Especially as it pertains to something like a WeWork. And you look at the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and what kind of startups they're funding and where they're funneling cash, and they really have their hands in everything. But then you also look at some of the potential human rights violations of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, particularly the journalist that went missing, and I guess was hacked up. They didn't necessarily admit to it, but all the evidence is showing that the kingdom did do it. And since there isn't really a separation of kingdom and Saudi Aramco, should we support Saudi Aramco and their IPO? Should the world support that? Is that what we're, are we giving them a nice pat on the back for all the terrible things that the kingdom has done? Yeah, we have. And we've done it for a long time. And I'm, I'm not being quaint here. It's not just Saudi Aramco. I mean, we did it we, as a country, as a political organization, we do it a lot of times. And the thing about politics, especially global politics, is you can't always find your best friend to support. Sometimes you got to find somebody that you hate the least, that has common goals with you, that you have to support. And that's that's a dirty world. I would not want to be in that world. That would bother me ethically all the time to have to make deals with people and officials and governments that do horrible things to humanity just to protect my interest. I get it. And somebody has to do it. And it's not, like I said, it's never black and white. It's never perfect. But you know, I'm right there with you, Jake. It's it's That's just dirty business. But at the same time, Jake, we, we need a ally in the Middle East. I mean, you know, it's a hard one to make a judgment call on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's just, it's something that I was thinking about whenever I was seeing a lot of the banks that were working on the IPO and it was the who's who. It was pretty much every bank in the world was working on that. And of course, they're eager to because every single one of them, it's not their job to determine whether they should work with them or not based on, you know, ethical reasons, but they're all going to make money, right? And you look at what the potential valuation for this could be, and it's instantly the largest public company in the world. And it's like, because they have the most money and he who has the most money can kind of make the rules, it's kind of a unfortunate ethical situation. And I, I agree with you. I would not want to be a politician. I wouldn't want to have to make these decisions. Yeah. All right. Number nine, politics get personal. For the first time ever, did. <laughs> for the first time ever, Jake, I'm changed my mind about politics. You know, for the longest time, I've said let's not let's not get involved in politics. It's a personal choice, right? So you vote for the leaders and the laws that that are right for you. And just because you and I don't vote the same way doesn't mean we can't be friends. You know, for the oil and gas industry, let's let the lobbyists and the the industry trade organizations handle politics. They're doing a horrible job of it. And and I'm at the point now where you know what. Mark LaCour is personally to start talking about politics and oil and gas because it needs to change. You're having, you know, you're having municipalities shut down the supply of natural gas to new construction. You're having pipeline infrastructures turn into political arguments. They're not, they're an infrastructure thing. You're having state governments sue majors and super majors over climate change. And this just has to stop people. This is getting ridiculous. So I think in 2020, if you're in the oil and gas industry, you can't stand by the sidelines and say other people or other organizations or your company or whatever to take care of the politics and oil and gas. You got to get out and make your voice heard. I don't mean in a egotistical, opinionated, you know, nasty political sort of way, but be proud of yourself. Walk out there and say, you know what? I'm a roughneck, right? I make enough hydrocarbons that this whole city, right, can get cheap, reliable electricity to their school, right? Say I work for Shell or Chevron or Exxon or Schlumberger or FMC or whatever. Be proud of it, people, and vote along the lines to help support your industry. And I don't mean vote stupidly, right? If there's somebody out there that's pro oil and gas, but they're anti a whole bunch of other stuff, don't make that type of narrow-minded decision. But each and every one of us that are in the oil and gas industry has to start talking politics because it's going to be the it's going to kill us. It's not going to kill us. But it's it's gonna hurt us really bad. You look at what Greenpeace did. We talked about this in the last show with nuclear. You know, this whole world should be run on nuclear energy right now. Greenpeace killed it. 
politically, they were able to stop something that was good for everybody. Hydrocarbons will never go away. But if we let the people that don't like us for whatever reason keep influencing politics, it's going to make it very hard for us to make a living, very hard for us to produce hydrocarbons. And so, you know, each and every one of us needs to get personal with our politics and take a stand. I'm tired of people and companies backpedaling and, and I'm not doing it anymore. I 100% agree. And I think that goes back to what I said about content. And you don't have to be an Alex Jones type personality. You don't have to be super controversial. Sometimes it works, but just be authentic, you know, tell your story. And if we had more stories from people in the oil patch and all the good things that we are doing, I think it's definitely going to help with public perception because if we don't do anything, who is going to? And, and their perception is a, is, a, is a major threat to our industry. Agreed. All right. Number 10. And Jake, you'd be surprised where this one came from. This came from last year, me spending time in the ExxonMobil corporate headquarters, the Technique FMC, Grump Campus, the Equinor, the Petrobras. And it occurred to me that our industry is actually starting to change the way we work. So there's new ways of working because of technology. You can work from anywhere. You know, for the longest time, the oil and gas industry had this delayed gratification mentality. So I go work for company X for 30 years. I hate my job for 30 years. And then when I retire with these great benefits, then I get to enjoy my life. And that's not how people want to live in today's world. And it's not how I live my life. It's not how you live your life. And you're having this influx of people coming to oil and gas industries That's not going to live their life that way. So, you know, your ability to enjoy life while you feel productive at work need to go hand in hand. And that's starting to happen in oil and gas. I'm seeing companies, the major companies, offer flexible working arrangements, offer you know open vacation. It's really, really cool. And then the other thing that's really cool about all this is technology has made it really easy to start a business. I mean, you and I talk about, you and I talk about, you and I have startups or had startups, right? My startup's no longer a startup, it's a small business. But you know, we couldn't have OGGN or we couldn't have Motorpoint without the advances in technology, especially the fact that technology got cheaper cheaper to deploy and there's connectivity almost everywhere. So all that has built this new flexible workforce that the oil and gas industry has no choice but to adapt. If not, they're not going to have anybody work for them. The other thing that's really cool, Jake, is with things like faster internet connection and cloud computing, remote working is no longer a chore. So when I got started in this industry, you had to go to the office because the office is where the stuff was, where the files were, where the data was, where the information was, where the knowledge was. Office is also where the communication was. That was your business telephone line, right? Now, all that's just gone. You can have all that anywhere on your hand, in your iPhone, whatever. And then I just did a session with Top Coder. It was last week. I, we did a live podcast, had a couple of interviews that we did over there. And Top Coder, if you don't know, is basically gig economy for for app dev guys or a lot of technologists and they're huge. But Jake, it was the first time I actually got to spend time with them. And the thing that, that wowed me was they're not doing it to drive prices down. So when I think of gig economy, I think about a race to the bottom, right? So how cheap can I get dot network done? How cheap can I get, you know, a vehicle to come pick me up and bring me somewhere else? What top coders doing is the opposite of that. Yeah, I talked to a couple app dev guys that make more in a month on top coder than they made all year with their corporate jobs because they can pick and choose what they want. So it's a passion economy. It's not a gig economy or it still is a gig economy, but these people, these young people all over the world get to pick the jobs they want for the companies they want, the projects they want. And they're some of the best in the world. And so what's cool, the reason I ran into them is before the whole Anadarko Chevron Oxy thing happened, I was getting ready to interview some of the head data scientists at Anadarko about some really cool stuff they're doing that I still can't talk about this thing shakes out. And they were telling me how they brought Topcoder in and what would have been a one-year-long project not only only took three months, but it was half the cost. At the same time, the people that were doing all the work from the Topcoder side loved the work, loved the company they are doing, made a difference, and made money 
good money. So there's new ways of working that this industry has no choice and they have to adopt. And I, I just think it's awesome to be able to tap into global talent like that. I mean, even if you have your own in-house, you know, tech guys, they're information their head is dated, right? So maybe the last certification had was last year. Well, that's how good they are at, at X, at big data analytics, at you know, .NET development or whatever. Whereas with the gig type of economy that you know, the passion economy that these social groups have, you always have the best and the brightest. And that best and brightest may be a 14-year-old kid in Indonesia, but that guy can write code like nobody else. So wonderful, awesome stuff. New ways of working is my number 10 prediction of oil gas. 2020, you can see it start to take off and it's just going to continue to grow and it's great. I agree with all of that. And I think there's two main things that kind of stick out to me and it's that the the world is obviously moving towards more of a, it's more distributed. It's not as centralized and the gig economy is definitely evidence of that. I think also RigUp's valuation at $1.9 billion for kind of their contractor platform is also indicative of that as well. Yep. But what also what I would like to see is that while that is focused in RigUp and they could have some the plans to do what I'm about to say, but they're mostly focused on field personnel. So, but if you were to do that with reservoir engineers or geologists or landman or something like that, for one, if you are one of those and you're able to do five jobs at a time, you're kind of hedging yourself and, and, and securing a little bit more job security because now you're not relying on one employer. You can kind of work as you see fit as long as you're good at what you do. Right. And so it's no different than hiring developers on Upwork or one of these million other gig economy type platforms that you see on like the Silicon Valley side. Right. There's entire developers who do not work for a single company. They're just contractors. Right. And they make a premium for being a contractor, but they're also able to work multiple jobs at a time. You know, I know everybody's rebuttal is that there's going to be, oh, well, you know, if you're working for multiple companies and then they have some kind of, you know, you have some kind of secret sauce with your reservoir engineering and then they're going to go, you know, take it to everybody else. Come on, guys. No. Really? I, I, that threat, that risk is there right now anyway, right? And and there's yeah, ways absolutely. to mitigate that. Because they can, they can, you can just hire your competitors, best reservoir engineers, pay them a premium, which is exactly what happens in the industry anyways. So that's the first thing. And I think the industry is absolutely going that way. There's definitely some challenges to it, but we're, we're headed in the right direction. I agree 100%. Next is if you're a public ENP and you're not passing on any returns to your investors, you have not earned an office building. Sell your office building, make everybody remote. Drop yep. the mic. That's yep. all I'm going to say. All right. So there's my top 10 predictions for 2020. Like I said, audience, you got to hear it second, which by the way, Jake, if anybody's listening, if y'all would have signed up for the email list for Oil & Gas this week, you would have got a chance to go see it first live. So if you haven't signed up for our email list, go do it because that's where we do cool stuff. Anyway, so there's my top 10 predictions. Please invest no money on what I'm saying. This is my best guess for 2020. It's going to be interesting when we get toward the end of 2020 to see how right I am. I'm running about 73% accuracy over these last six years, so we'll see. Speaking of we'll see, if you want one of these really cool IBM shirts, it's really easy to win. Uh, go to the show notes, click on the link. These shirts have unique serial numbers. Each one's different. We're going to use those serial numbers to give away some really cool stuff. We need to do that because we've been saying that for almost a year now. So we'll, we'll get that in the works, but go register when they're really cool. They're actually really good looking shirts. And then speaking of really good looking shirts, you want to join the street team. It's our Facebook group. Go check it out. OG and street team. It's basically our global volunteer group. We ask you to help us with our social media. We ask for an hour's worth of work a week, but if you can't do it, we get it right. Stuff gets in the way. And then Jake, the weekly rig count. I don't even want to know what it is, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Are you ready? Yep. What's your guess? 840? 837. You're close. Uh, yeah. Well, production's still going up, but still, I don't like that number. It's low. 
And then speaking of events, you want to find out about all the oil and gas events that we are part of and other ones and secret stuff that nobody gets invited to, go sign up for my monthly oil and gas events newsletter. That link is also in the show note. And then BCD Travel. They're our travel provider of choice for this show and for all of our oil and gas podcasts. They're really cool. They make our oil and gas traveling life easier. And Jake, they're giving away free coffee for our listeners. Like you don't have to register for it. You just get it. They just give you free coffee. So go check out the link in the show notes. Uh, Go click on it and get your Starbucks gift card, get you some free coffee. Thanks to BCD Travel. And then if you want Jake and I to come speak at whatever your organization is, reach out. We're starting to have a lot of people reach out to us for next year. So next year's starting to fill up, but we still got a lot of spaces open. We can do some really cool stuff. We do some keynotes. We can bring a podcast there. We can do both, but reach out to us. We're happy to share the details. And then first Friday Q&A, that's where you're not supposed to try to stump Jake and I. That's where you're supposed to ask questions so we can help educate the audience. There's a link in the show notes. Go click on it or you can go to All and Gas this week and click on ask a question. If we use your question on the air, we give you a big shout out. And then like I said earlier, while you're out there, go ahead and go to the website, All and Gas this week. Give us your email address and you'll get notified of cool stuff. And finally, join the LinkedIn group. I don't even know what it's up to now. Between Tim and Alex, I, we're probably pushing 20,000 people. And it's funny because it was like 300 when I was running it. So obviously, I'm not very good at that. And they're much better at it. Oh, a lot of stuff. I don't know, Jake, ready to get out of here? Let's do it. All right, folks, remember, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. And here are the events on deck. Hey, everyone, Alex here with the events on deck for November. First of all, we had our best turnout ever for our latest happy hour in Houston with our panel discussion. So thanks to everyone who attended, and we hope to keep offering you guys value in the future. Be sure to listen here for any future happy hours. The events on deck for November include OGGN's second Denver happy hour on November 6th from 4 to 6 p.m. The cost of attendance is $20, a portion of which goes to local charities Safe House Denver and Oil Field Helping Hands. On November 12th at Minute Maid Stadium, IBM's Oil Field of Dreams, Data, Digitization, and Disruption. This event is free for all OGGN subscribers. OGGN's Mark LaCour will be doing a live podcast with ExxonMobil and his 2020 oil and gas predictions. On November 12th through 14th is Procurement Week in Sydney, Australia. Our travel partner, BCD Travel, will be sponsoring Day 2 of Procurement Week in Sydney. Day 2 has content focused on the construction, mining, and energy sectors as well as an indirect procurement leaders forum, which encompasses travel. Industry leaders will be discussing value-driven procurement approaches, evolving technologies, and the changing landscape. And drinks are on BCD at the end of the day. The Houston chapter API Energy Petroleum Club will be meeting on November 12th in Houston. Speaker Shane McElroy will be talking about the sustainability of electric fracturing. We have another free event on deck this month for our subscribers. The Top Coder Innovation Summit will be taking place on November 14th in Houston, Texas. This event is the premier innovation event for industry leaders. You'll have the opportunity to attend panels on innovation and emerging technologies and meet with the YPRO and Top Coder executive teams. Lastly, the Algeria Oil and Gas Summit is happening on November 19th through 21st this year. Alnaft will be sharing onshore and offshore updates for Africa's leading gas producer and opportunities for independent oil and gas companies. And don't forget, if you guys would like to receive these events each month via email, click Get Mark's Monthly Events email link in the show notes of any OGGN podcast. Hope you guys have a great month. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.